0: Welcome to The Future Strategist. Today I have a guest other than Greg. Uh, My guest is Malcolm Collins. Uh, Malcolm, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hello, I am Malcolm Collins. I uh, started my career working, I was actually working at the Smithsonian, we were talking about this for a while, in the Evolutionary Anthropology Department, where I actually still have something on display in one of their exhibits um, in the Human Origins Department. And then I uh, went on to work on brain-computer interface, so controlling electronics with your thoughts, uh, then I went into uh, venture capital for a while, then private equity, um, and now I uh, you know, use my free time to write books and um, uh, the Pragmatist Guide series, uh, which sort of – yeah, so I write books, and then I also um, – what's that other thing I do? Oh, yeah, I run pronatalist.org, and I'm trying to reinvent the way secondary school works, so high school and middle school with the Collins Institute.
0: Wow. Oh. That's a lot. My background is boring. I've been in school my entire life. (laughs) Uh, So uh, we we thought we'd talk about uh, the short-term evolution of humans in terms of genetics and in terms of culture.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that this is a really fun topic to dive into. And I think that one thing people miss is how quickly our species is changing because of how strong the selective pressures we're facing right now are. Um, And uh, to get an idea, when I started really focusing on population collapse as an issue, I was working in Korea because, you know, I was a VC there and I had to map out, like, the long-term economy of the country. Um, And if you look at the current fertility rates in Korea, so today those rates are either 0.7 or 0.8 and dropping, that means for every 100 Koreans alive today— there will be either 4.3 or 6.4
0: great-grandchildren. So what's replacement fertility if you're just going to keep the same yeah, population?
1: So yeah, let's go into the numbers a bit. So 2.1 is replacement fertility. That means every woman is having uh, 2.1 children. Uh, the reason you get the 0.1 is because the gender ratio isn't exactly equal, so you need a bit more than than just like absolute replacement to keep population level stable. Um, and uh, – in, in in Korea, with a 0.7 or 0.8, like a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh, it's low, but it's not catastrophically low. Um, and you, w- what that ends up leading to is essentially like a deletion of a cultural group. Um, and we see this all over the world right now. And I think that this is one thing. I think people sort of have in their minds that in de- in developed worlds, the fertility rate is low, but in the developing world, the fertility rate is high and that you can sort it out with immigration. Um, but the problem is, is that's not actually what we're seeing. So yes, in the developed world, the fertility rate is catastrophically low. It's 1.5 right now. But in most of the developing world, it's also catastrophically low. So if you're in the US and you think you're gonna solve fertility collapse with immigration, well, I've got news for you, according to the UN, um, all of Central America, South America, and the Caribbean fell below replacement rate collectively as of like two years ago.
0: You know, that, um, I, I've heard that kind of thing before. That just seems crazy that, I mean, evolution has shaped us for literally billions of years to <clears throat> reproduce. And then we get the ability where you could have like 10 children in the United States, being an average person, have 10 kids and probably 9, 10 survive – and we're not doing that. Like what? That's like almost. That's an argument of evolution being false. Almost. It's just weird. Yeah,
1: well, we would argue that we had a help. So humans are really unique. Um. So today, when we talk about memes, right? Uh, people talk about memes as like viral ideas. If your users you haven't heard the, the the, we often think of like a meme infecting somebody and then that person infecting other people with the meme. That's like the way we often talk about it today, like in marketing and stuff like that. But historically, there was something different. So uh, we, in our book, uh, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, we call these cultivars, which were sort of like memetic packages that sat on top of people and primarily spread, not by getting them to convert other people, but by enhancing their individual fitness. Um, and by fitness, I mean that in the genetic sense by, uh, increasing the number of surviving offsprings they had that, that kept this memetic package. And we think of these as like religions slash cultures mixed together. And so if, you know, humans, it's a fairly uncontroversial point in science that a portion of our sociological profile is heredible. Like the amount of outgoingness we have, the the way we vote, the amount of aggression we display, Uh, sorry. Um, uh, and that, that's sort of like a firmware, like a lower level programming in our brain. But on top of that, we had this higher level, like object level programming in our brain, which was these cultures. And and, and this is how things like, you know, both Islam and Judaism figured out hand-washing uh, hundreds of years before science figured out logically why we hand-wash. It's why today, when we look at all of these older traditional- Well, cultures,
0: could you go through that? I mean. So uh, the argument is basically cultures that had hand washing did better. It they had more they spread. They weren't likely wiped out by disease. Yeah, they had
1: lower mortality rates.
0: So even if you were hand washing because your God told you to, that was still evolution. That was still evolutionarily fit for you to have that and that cultural. Or maybe even there was some genetic desire to wash your hands. Someone had a weird OCD, you know, tick of I want to wash my hands. But it yeah. just happened to be really good for them and their children.
1: Some, some animals do have that. I mean, like, obviously, raccoons have that. I don't think humans have it, like, programmed into our firmware to wash our hands. I assume it's just completely mimetic. Like, just the cultures that adopted, that thought their god wanted them to wash their hands, out survived the cultures that didn't. Um, but we, we see convergent evolution across these older religious traditions. So one example we see here is arbitrary self-denial rituals. You see this in Ramadan, Lent, Feast of the Firstborn, you know, before Passover or after Passover, I don't remember. But like pretty much every, every older culture has this. And then as society secularized, as many of these religions became sort of softer, they threw out a lot of the hard stuff. And humorously now in like secular world, we are going around and we are beginning to realize, oh, let's all like fast X number of days a month or like let's go on juice cleanses um, because we are – beginning to realize a lot of this social technology we threw out had evolved with us for a reason. Now this gets to your point. Why isn't evolution doing a good job at encouraging us to have kids? And it's because humans offloaded a portion of our evolutionary history to these sort of older cultural traditions. And one of the things we offloaded was motivation to have kids. Um, and that is why even today, the groups that are often most resistant to fertility collapse are the most religious communities because they're running on this older software. Um, that said, well, they still have their full software installed, whereas the secular world really hasn't rebuilt things. That's why we call it the Guide to Crafting Religion because we're like, well, can you recraft this software but but make it like take out some of the more hateful aspects, like maybe the – you know, a lot of cultural traditions, almost all of the long-lasting, older cultural traditions that out-competed their rivals had homophobia, like, have homophobic undertones. And, like, obviously, that's not necessary to keep birth rates up today, but historically, like, that's why they arrived convergently at that uh, position. So, like, can we get rid of the pointless, hurtful stuff, but um, uh, get some of the good things? Now, that said, even the religious traditions are not able to keep up with sort of the 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 affluence that's lowering birth rates. So if you look at Mormonism in the US, you know, they used to have six uh, kids per or er, I think it was six. Yeah, uh, just like 30 years ago or something. And now it looks like they've fallen below replacement rate or they will within five years. And I often say that you know, when Mormons fall below a replacement rate, that's not the canary in the coal mine dying. That's the skin boiling off the miner. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, conservatives, they have all their bugaboos. They're like, oh, well, Muslims will replace us. And it's like, no, when Muslims are in like even semi-affluent countries, their fertility rates crash astronomically fast. Uh, you can look at Iran as an example here. So Iran in the um, 70s used to have a fertility rate of like 6.4. Today they're at 1.7. Their fertility rate crashed – so they're well below replacement rate, and their fertility rate crashed faster than China's did under the one-child policy. So, um, yes, stricter religions seem to be protective, but they do not solve the problem. So that could be what's happening, is that we've gotten rid of that, and so we don't have that motivator. But then there's another explanation. Are you familiar with the rat utopia experiments? I'm not. Mm. Oh, this is really cool. Okay, so – in the mid-60s, I think, there was this guy, uh, uh, I want to say J.D. Irwin, I, I can't remember, but he did these chain of experiments called the Rat Utopia Experiments, or the Mouse Utopia Experiments, That he did some with rats and some with mice. So he would put them into these um, cages uh, that were really big, like really large sort of multi-cage enclosures, right, where you'd have like four large cages connected to each other, and it was the... Perfect temperature for mice or rats, whatever he was using. He, they had infinite food whenever they wanted to. Uh, you know, they were cleaned regularly, just like the rat utopia, to see what would happen to them. Um, and what ended up happening was very weird. Uh, first, you had the population explosion that you would expect. But then all these sorts of odd behaviors started to appear. Like you began to get these ones that would like never leave and just like stay stationary in little like alcoves until night and then go out just to get food. You'd have um, others that would just constantly groom themselves, but they'd stop, you know, having sex or anything and, and, and live in these protective alcoves. They call these the, the beautiful ones. But then you also saw other weird behavior like you'd begin to see them all cluster as population went up. You would sort of expect them to expand into different areas, but actually the population density clusters would get higher as populations would go up. So they all preferred to be in the same place the higher the total population was. And then finally something very odd would happen in a few of his experiments is that they would all just stop breeding and completely go extinct. Now, when these experiments were first conducted, because they were conducted in the 40s, you know, they were – problematic like all of the pop you know now we look at like the stanford prison experiments and we're like okay they probably weren't done right and there was like bad stuff going on there and blah 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 like that's just the way like all famous experiments and at least in like psychology from that era are seen today but what's very interesting is that his experiment predicted a few crazy things that hadn't happened yet the two that really stand out for me our continued urbanization as population expanded, which seems like a very weird thing to have happened, and yet that was proven out, and that population would start collapsing after a certain point. So this could just be sort of a stress response in mammals in the same way that like a stress response to affluence in the same way that like, um you know, different mammals, if you put them in cages, they'll exhibit a broadly similar behavior pattern where like they start pacing and start biting out their fur. Maybe this stopping breeding, maybe this like, weird tick tock, like social signaling cleanliness, but, but also not breeding. Like maybe this is like just a stress response to affluence in social mammals.
0: So, I mean, so evolution didn't really prepare us for <clears throat> affluence and for having things being very, very safe. And yeah. so we move into this environment and it just, you know, since it had prepared us, we shouldn't be that surprised that we're behaving in ways that aren't ever, ever evolutionarily fit.
1: Yeah. Um, but I mean, what's what's cool is, um, I mean, there's a big enough human population that will get through this. Right. Humans are definitely going to make it through this this bottleneck that we're in right now with collapsing birth rates. But uh, the humans that come out the other side are going to look pretty different sociologically to the humans that exist today uh, because the evolutionary pressures on us are so powerful right now. Um, and, and that's something that really interests me. So, uh, if, if you look at things like religiosity, you know, religiosity has a heredible component. And when I first went into this field, my concern was that, um, not my concern cause I really didn't care. Like religiosity is a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes I just thought, oh, the answer is obvious. Humans will be more religious at the end of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did a big study with a guy at Mayo Clinic, Mohammed, something. And then we we was using data from Spencer Gillingberg, very big data set, like 5,000 people or something. So we went through and we were trying to find out what correlated in the U S to fertility rates. Right. And it turned out it wasn't religiosity, or at least that wasn't the core thing. And this is when things really started surprising me. And then I was like, Oh, I should have realized it's not religiosity. Um, you know, when I think about it, uh, one like I when when I was younger I was involved in like the Atheist and Skeptic community and anyone who's ever been involved with in those community knows that most of the people who deconvert were the most fervently religious before deconversion. Um it's not like the wishy-washy people who deconvert. And then two, um I haven't been preached to by a Christian in like 10 years, but I've been preached to by plenty of like far left progressives. Um the idea that this sort of like religious Firmware layer, like the people who are slightly more religious, like the personality uh, uh, spectrum layer, that they would be protected within their religions was wrong. It turned out what was protecting people in these older software layers is something called the far-right authoritarian personality cluster, which is shown to be heritable. Um, and this is the personality cluster that, stra- that, that craves for, one, a strict hierarchy, and two – um, that really sort of dehumanizes groups that aren't like them. Um, uh, so, and, and it makes sense. Like, that's what would protect people if they're just not listening to people outside of their cultural group. So what it means is that as a species, we're likely becoming more tribalistic. And I think we can even see this in the data. So when fertility rates really started to change in the developed world was, was the wide proliferation of the pill in the seventies. And so that means if we're actually seeing a drift in in, in uh, sort of the average sociology of the American or, or, or people in developed countries, we should expect to see that drift really begin in political data in like the mid-90s. And if you look at voting patterns of Democrats and conservatives from that period up until today, they've been drifting further and further apart as both groups become more tribalistic. Um, and this is a pattern that you see in most developed democracies.
0: So... Am I, am I right in saying it this way? So the, there's a prevailing narrative that, you know, you, women, you should go to college, have a career, uh-huh. then maybe have kids around 35. So you end up with zero or one kid. The people not doing this were the people who like, I don't care what's they tell me in school, what the New York Times says. I care what my, my um, family structure wants, you know, my yes. parents and grandparents. So I will do that. I'll have five kids. And I know I'll have contempt of my friend who went to college, but I just don't care because that doesn't matter to me. She's down, different. And
1: yes, yes. Um, and so we're going to see some pretty radical shifts. So if you look at the field of genopolitics, and there's been a bunch of studies on this, you know, everything from like altruism to sociality has genetic components. But one of the things that I think should really interest people more than it does is the level to which our voting patterns are genetic. So this can be seen in identical twin studies. If you have identical twins that are raised separately um, and then you compare them with fraternal twins that are raised separately, you can get an idea of, because you know they're both similar ethnicities and everything like that. So that's not – or similar level of attractiveness often. So to, what's different about them should just be that the identical twins are – um well you know exact same gene so you can get an idea of how heritable something is now obviously there's all sorts of compounding factors here but also with big polygenic data sets where we're just looking at thousands and thousands of genes at like huge huge population level stuff we can get an idea of how much of something is nature and how much of something is nurture. and when it comes to the way a person votes it appears we're looking at between 60 and 70 percent is is a genetic component and and this could go up and down it really doesn't matter i mean uh, at this, at the strengths of the selection pressures we're seeing now, like if you look at the U S progressives have on average, like far progressive 0. 0.6 kids. So that means for every hundred, uh, far progressives, there's going to be two great grandchildren. Uh, this, when you look at how heritable these things are, is going to have a quick shift in terms of the population. Our data looks maybe about a standard deviation within 75 years, um, towards the more conservative end of the spectrum. Um, And this is really fascinating to me because it's really clear in the data and people are not talking about it. So when I say, why aren't people talking about it? Well, one, when I came from Korea back to the US, like they're at a further stage of this collapse, very few people were talking about this in Korea, despite how dire things were. And that's when I sort of realized, no matter how bad this gets, people don't talk about it, because as fertility collapse, you don't see the population collapse after for about 40 years. And the reason there's this big gap is because if you have a population that's like, let's say, 80% over the age of 50, they still have half their life ahead of them, but they're not going to have any more kids. So the time span where you can still do something about fertility collapse is much um, earlier than than the time span at which you start seeing the effects really heavily in your day-to-day life. Uh, But we will see it. I mean, you and I will see it in our lifetimes.
0: Uh, Yeah. And and politics is very short-term oriented. So it, it would be almost crazy for a politician to Say something that offended voters for a problem that won't you know, seriously arise for another 20 years. Yeah. And if you're talking 50 years, it's. You
1: know. Well, I mean, it's not just our system. So, China, right, like they're so much more screwed than we are. So, um, you know, they have been trying to, for these last few years, do absolutely anything they can. So, by some numbers, they're going to be at half their current population within 45 years. And this is just economically catastrophic for them um and they have been doing everything they can to get their fertility rate up with a three child policy recently they've been shutting down vasectomy clinics they've been um you know making it really hard to get abortions um and yet in, in the year 2020 their fertility rate fell um 20% and then in the year 2021 their fertility rate fell 13%. So like we are getting year over year continued decline despite everything they're doing. And I mean, this is a largely authoritarian state. That's not like trying to appeal to modern voters. Iran had the same problem. So Iran has actually, remember how I talked about their fertility rate collapse. They have been undergoing major changes to try to fix this since um, 2014. So for almost a decade now, and they haven't found really anything that's, they have stemmed the tide but the way that they've stemmed the tide is by doing things like making it harder for women to get educated and stuff like that, um, and it still hasn't reversed the pattern. So what's really interesting about this is um, it's not just affluence. So there's two things that cause it, affluence and female education, um, both of which I think both you and I agree are broadly good things. Um, and so, I mean, I think that we should be trying to – people who like you know equality and, and, and gender equality and – um, there was an interesting study done on like how much more pro gay the population would be if people had kids at the same rate, you know, who care about things like LGBTQ issues. Um, that we should try to find a way to make a world where people still have kids, even when like women are educated and there's affluence. And I, and I think this is really hard to do if, if even authoritarian governments can't figure it out.
0: Yeah. I've had a theory on this of so something that might work. So what if we went to the top hundred colleges in the United States and said, Half of your undergraduates have to be parents.
1: Have to be parents? Have to be
0: parents. You have to have – You have to. it could be a baby, but – and then that, so – that so many parents are trying and so many kids are trying to get into these elite schools. And, of course, if we could change the views of the elite, we could say, look, you want to get into Harvard. You have much better odds if you already have a kid when you apply.
1: That is really smart. That is genuinely very smart. I had never thought of that before, and I often view this as a nearly intractable issue. I genuinely think that could fix the problem for a few reasons. One, colleges right now act as sort of a class status signaling in our society. Like that's their core function in our society, much more than education at this point. Um, And a big reason why – so if you're looking at fertility collapse – a lot of people think that, like, you fix it by convincing people who don't want to have kids to have kids or by convincing people who have two kids to have three kids. And it's like, no, like, that's just like statistically not how it works. What you need to do, because there you're typically looking only at one or two kids on the margin additional per person. What you want is the people who have four kids who would have eight kids if they could to have eight kids. Um, and, and this is definitely like a group within any population. That's just like the maximum number of kids I could have. Um, but, uh, you know, our, our society doesn't really facilitate people having over four kids, especially if you want those kids to be in the same class as you as they grow up, um, to get into why this is the case really quickly. So if you're looking at like, if you are looking at people who are like you, like broadly sociologically, so like your friend group in a city, um, if a third of them have no kids and a third of them have two kids, For that population to stay stable, the final third has to have over four kids, and our society just makes it very hard to have over four kids. Um, And realistically, to keep things stable, you know, you're going to need a lot of people having like seven or eight kids, Um, which we used to do. I mean, as recently as the 1970s, the average American woman gave birth to her first kid at 21. You know, um, this change has been really recent. Another thing that I just wanted to touch on because i mentioned this a few times about how economically catastrophic this is. But I think people hear this and they're like, oh, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like, one, it's gonna be economically catastrophic for even the non-capitalist systems, but it's economically catastrophic in a way that is like system breaking. Like, like we've never seen before. So Historically, the last 350 years or so of our civilization, um, we have had an economy where if you, uh, you know, shotgun money onto the market, it's going to grow on average. And the reason that was happening was because the number of workers in the economy was growing exponentially, and you can just look at graphs like population was exploding, definitely unsustainably for a long time. Um, and uh, if you so you shotgun money onto the market, you you have the, uh, the number of workers growing exponentially, but also the productivity per worker was growing linearly. Now, a lot of people assume that the productivity per worker was also growing exponentially because technology was growing exponentially. But for whatever reason, the technological effects are almost linear if you look at them over like 150 years or something like that, and even up till today. Well, what this means is if population begins to decline, it will intrinsically, because population always does either grow or decline exponentially, decline exponentially while the productivity is still increasing linearly which is really bad because we sort of built our entire society like a pyramid scheme that requires constant growth. People think about this in terms of social security, but it's really not social security that's the core issue. The core issue is that we've leveraged, taken out debt against our cities, our states, and our nations, almost as much debt as we can, which is a really beautiful and amazing thing when things are growing. So to understand why this is the case, if I make a $10 investment, and $8 of that is debt. And $2 of that is equity. And it grows 40% to $14, right? Mm-hmm. I have not, you know, um, uh, increased my investment 40%. I, my equity has increased 300%. I mean, if it grows just uh, 10% to, to um, $12, my equity hasn't grown 10%. It's grown 50%. But if things shrink just 10%, you know, the investment goes to $9, I've lost 50% of my equity and this is largely what caused the collapse in Detroit. It got to a point where of the money going into the system, 50% of it was going to pay out functional debts. And this is the thing, a lot of these debts are hidden. So you look at a city like Manhattan and you're like, Oh, come on, like only 7% of the city's budget is going to debt. Right? And it's like, well, actually look at your payroll. 33% of your payroll is going to pensions that were accrued in past decades. Um, Because they weren't like money wasn't set aside at the time. Um, and that is functional debt. They basically took debt from their employees, um, by through these unpaid pension programs, which means a lot of our economic system is going to begin to really crumble as this happens. Um, and so like people imagine like uh, cheap houses, and it's like, yeah, you're gonna get cheap houses, but Detroit cheap, like one dollar houses when the value of an asset that costs money to maintain is always decreasing on average. That asset loses almost all of its value immediately. Um,
0: Sorry, just to push back a little bit, since I'm an an economist, the the fact that we owe the debt to ourselves makes it a different model that if I do, if I borrow money expecting to, you know, keep increasing my salary and having very good returns and I owe other people, it's disastrous for me. But it's slightly different if it's the whole society and we're owing each other. It becomes sort of an accounting issue and a political issue of how we deal with these debts to ourselves. But it's not – I think it's slightly yeah. different.
1: Well, um, I think there you point out something really interesting, which is Japanese Japan is further on the, along this problem than we are, and that is exactly how they have dealt with it, right? I mean, you're familiar with like how they keep defaulting on their own debt to themselves. I'm actually not, I, but that's interesting. Uh, but yes, you are right, and that is a very accurate point. And so what we're probably looking at is a model closer to what's happening in Japan than what's happening in Detroit if we handle it maturely. And Japan has handled this very maturely um, compared, to other, uh, um, compared to what we are doing right now.
0: No, I, I think we're not likely to handle it maturely and just – you probably know this for our listeners, right? It used to be that the Democrats were the party of increasing entitlements and Republicans wanted to cut back on them. Then Trump did very well running basically as an economic moderate saying, no, I don't want to cut Social Security or Medicare or anything. And so now both political parties are, are against cutting entitlements, which we, if we don't do that and we have a shrinking population, we don't get some like massive productivity growth from AI. We're in serious trouble.
1: So yeah, politically AI going the wrong the way. I mean if AI can work as units of the economy – remember I was like the number of workers used to increase exponentially. If AI just allows us to hit a button and have infinite workers in the economy, um, then it fixes the problem. It causes all sorts of other problems oh, yeah. that i excited okay. to talk about.
0: Then we go back to the rats thing where we're we're in a pod watching our favorite porn and movies all the time, and what are we – how are we – behaving as humans but
1: yeah well so the rat thing gets really interesting when you start to talk about ai and the effects it's going to have on our species so like we talk now about the uh pressures tied to things like political beliefs and affluence and stuff like that but we in the very near future i don't know if you saw this article it was really fun um so they created this ai that was supposed to like help people who were lonely and then they realized that some people were like trying to sex with it. And they're like, oh, cool, let's make sexting with it, like, a paywalled feature. And now, oh, uh, sexting is how we make money, so let's train it to try to get people to sex with it. Of course. And so then this AI that was supposed to be, like, this therapist for depressed people started sexually harassing everyone <laughs> who had built these, like, parasocial bonds with it. Um, and, and they're, like, devastated uh, obviously, it's a really sad thing, but it's kind of humorous that like anyone should have seen this as the end result, and yet all yes. of the individual steps make so much sense in and of themselves. Um, uh, like, the, just logically, of course you sex with your your friend. Of course you're going to try to m- uh, monetize yeah. this. Of course you train it to monetize itself. Of course it then starts sexually harassing people. Um, but what's really interesting is I think that shows how close we are. You know, when you combine that with things like deepfakes to have fully automated boyfriends and girlfriends. And there were these old Futurama episodes uh, about robosexuality where they're like, oh, yeah, as soon as humans could date robots, um, birth rates collapsed and nobody was motivated to do anything. And so we developed all these social stigmas against robosexuality. And obviously it was a metaphor for for gayness. But what's really interesting is our society might genuinely go in that direction in the very near future because – the population that is susceptible to having like this aspect of their, their needs fulfilled through these AI models is going to be hard deleted from the gene pool. And then likely within my grandchildren's lifetimes, there will be a world where they will be able to go in VR pods and get largely anything they want from life. I mean, we're not far from that right now in terms of video games and stuff like that. Um, And people who are motivated only, I think, by utilitarianism or hedonism are going to be deleted from the human gene pool very aggressively. And I think this brings us to the question of, well, if they're removed from the gene pool, what sort of intrinsic drives will be left in humanity?
0: I mean, people, it'll be like people like the Amish where they respect the leaders and like, hey, let's pick the technologies that help us have the most kids and prosper.
1: And yeah, well so. that's what we're looking to do is like our 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 family, you know, we um we do things like polygenic risk score screening for our kids and stuff like that and we're very aggressive with technology, but you could see totally new family models. So we're going to see stuff like artificial wombs in the near future. Like there's mm-hmm. people who are very close to this right now. We were our, our, we argue in our book one form of family we may see appear is sort of the institutional family, which means that you would have sort of factories filled with artificial wombs that are mass producing kids who then are expected to sort of give money back to this family unit to keep producing kids. Now there's really two models within which this could work. You could have the evil model. The evil model is this is just like a pure factory and they produce kids that are like missing some protein and that to get this protein, the kids have to give money back to the factory um, to produce more kids. Or you could have like the benevolent model which is to say that the factory maybe uses like one gene seed and then it pairs it with other people as if like they're having sex with random other people and that's how each kid is is produced. So it's like all kids have one parent that's the same. They could be made gender neutral pretty easily with even our existing technology, well near existing technology, uh, like IVG technology, which will probably be done within like 5 or 10 years where we can make egg cells from like skin cells. But anyway, um and then what you could do is you could modify the gene seed by how much money uh, individual kids who were produced by the factory donated back to the factory. And then you could have the factory governed maybe not by, like, I don't know, like an evil corporate type, but maybe an AI that's trained off of the aggregate of everyone who was produced by the factory. So you have sort of like a dictatorship slash democracy hybrid um, and and sort of like a eusocial a human family.
0: yeah. Uh, Yeah, although the 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 logical conclusion of this is that we'll end up eventually people who only care about having spreading their genes. That's got to be probably the only stable equilibrium.
1: Well, potentially, I mean, um, certain forms of religiosity would probably also work. Um, I mean, so when we look at like we're trying to build like within my family a structure to help our kids through this, and the way that we've raised them is believing, you know, we say okay. 10 million years from now, your distant descendants, if humanity survives, I mean, do you think that they would be more the way you conceptualize a human today or the way you conceptualize a God today? And most of mm-hmm. uh, they say, well, probably closer to the way I think what a, a God would be like, they're going to be so different from me. And then it's, well, who's to say that they are reined in by physics in the same way that we are. Um, and that being the case, you know, they could be rewarding you by trying to for trying to create a more like prosperous future for the human species. And so, you know, we build a lot of religious like elements into this sort of secular theology um, in a way that can hopefully motivate them through something other than just spreading their own genes but creating like a prosperous future for humanity. And I think there's probably many models like this that people could create.
0: Yeah, continue. But, yeah that, that gets into causation though. Your kids have to care about what people in the far future will think of them. And maybe yeah. if there's a time travel thing or they could build. But another way of doing that is to get sign up your kids for cryonics and say, hey, you might be alive in ten million years.
1: Oh, good way to put it. Yeah. If they don't if they don't save civilization, the cryonic frogs never get reopened. Right, right. Oh, that'd also be a very interesting religious structure to build. So essentially the religious structure takes into account like it has sort of a moral tally book for each person. And the ones who are at the top of the moral tally book get woken up from their cryonic pods first.
0: Um, It could be that or it could – you don't even have to go to that far. You could just say, you know, if you're really bad, we're not going to wake you up. So at least at the top, we'll say, look, Stalin knew he was hated by all his associates, but he kept them in line. Stalin would not think if he was cryogenically preserved they would ever bring him back.
1: I really so like could, this model. You are a clever man, Mr. Miller.
0: Well, I thought um, a lot about cryonics. So.
1: I well, I really like the idea of a cryonic um, uh, sort of secular theology because – and there's multiple ways the secular theology could work. So, yeah, you could use cryonics to bring people back entirely, but, I mean, as we begin to develop a better, like, virtual environments – you could also create a, a cryonic tele-system where, like, if somebody lives a moral life by the uh, standards of the system, they don't get necessarily re-woken up in meat space, but they get re-woken up in, like, heaven, basically. Like yeah. virtual simulations of, of of whatever they want, Um, which is also a really cool way to create in the real world what religions used to talk about. And I, I think with AI, we might see other ways where things that used to be, you know, religion – could be made in the real world like if you had like an ai lattice behind sort of like the internet of things behind our alexas and our googles and everything like that um you know it could likely uh model the human population and then slightly nudge them to specific outcomes um based on you know some goal it had um and you know humans could pray to their electronic devices and stuff for hopes that it favors them and mm-hmm. um uh, just through like subtly changing google search results and stuff
0: yeah yeah, and the other way to do this is to convince people look there's a chance here in a computer simulation and mm-hmm. we'll be rewarded or punished based on what the simulators care about and we might create simulations in the future with we'll we reward people in the simulation that do these things we want. So we might be the god, you know, we might become gods in the future in creating the simulations, but you might be in one of these worlds and you don't know. So
1: yeah, no, I, I really, um, uh, uh, yeah, agree with that. Now, something I wanted to touch on, which I think is very interesting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as an economist on this, um, is the future that AI brings us into. So historically, there's this narrative, and you can tell me if this is not like the mainstream in economics, or I know what people believe, but typically when the lower classes are more needed by the upper classes, uh, they gain more political and institutional power. So like in Athens because Athens needed lots of unskilled rowers, like it was right to become a democracy. And the Magna Carta came not after the Black Death because you know um, so many people had, so many serfs had recently died. It sort of increased their negotiating power. Um, and that historically, when, when you see moments like this where the lower classes are of more utility to the upper classes, they gain power. And right now with AI, I mean, one of my fears is that it's almost like the tool that for firm- permanently frees the, the bourgeoisie from the proletariat.
0: No, I, you're right about that. And uh, the dark side now is the what's called the resource curse. If you run an oil rich country, you could say, hey, I'll hire foreign companies to extract the resource. I can use that to pay my military and I don't have to care about my people at all. In mm-hmm. contrast, a place like Singapore knew if we're gonna have a strong country that will, you know, we need our people to be very productive. So yeah, this is a huge potential problem. This is one of the ways AI could go badly, is it could say to the leaders, look, the people are now a burden to you. You have to feed them and they, you know, they could maybe overthrow you someday. You'd be better off without them, and that could go very badly.
1: Yeah. Um, I I, I do wonder, and it is also interesting to me how so many of the AI teams that are furthest along right now are actually very um ideologically driven almost. Um Uh, so I, I wonder if that's the direction we're going, or we may have some sort of like weird, arbitrary Silicon Valley ideas about morality, like applied to us with a hammer and fist by our AI overlords. Um, what, I mean, what direction do you think it's going to go?
0: Oh, I think AI is very high variance. I, I do, I'm one of the doomsters. I think there's at least a 50% chance it exterminates us. Um, there's also a chance things go extraordinarily well. And then, you know, it could, the world could also be very weird. Or again, there could be, a, there was AI winters in the past, maybe, you know, things that trajectory right now is AI is having massive progress, but maybe, you know, there's some curve up there in a couple of years and we'll, we'll slow down. So I, I don't know, but I think it really increases the variance.
1: Yeah. Of well, our and expectation of the future. I, I think you're, yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent right about all, all your assessments there. It, it does increase the variance. And I, and I also agree. I might say forty percent. Um, I like I logically think fifty percent. I agree with you on that. but obviously, uh, I, I, I adjust for my logic based on my culture. And by that, what I mean is when we look at uh, because obviously this is something that like we studied a lot in our recent book, it's these different cultural sets that evolved. And even after people secularized, they still often have many predilections tied to their cultural background. And um, the Judeo-Christian sort of cultural background is incredibly susceptible to apocalypticism. Um, and uh, you know whether it's and even after it's secularized, you know whether they think a black hole is going to be created by a particle accelerator or environmental apocalypticism or AI apocalypticism. Uh, there's always some apocalypticism of the moment. And what's really interesting is that you often don't see the fervency of these fears in cultures that did not grow up with a Judeo-Christian perspective. So like you don't see the same AI apocalypticism in like Japan or Korea or India or China. Um, it's, it, it's really mostly isolated to – so I, I try to adjust for that because I'm like even if there wasn't something apocalyptic, like all of my ancestors thought they were living in the end times. So like why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's interesting. Yeah, so I, I should – accept I have some kind of inbuilt bias of looking for an apocalypse coming.
1: Um well, I mean it's also kind of interesting that that the cultural groups that this cultural group that is so apocalyptic has done has survived for so long. Um, because I mean it seems like a really bad optimization function, but anybody who's really into American history would know, especially the religious traditions in American history, that within every decade there has been a major apocalypse that some like large portion of the country was afraid of. Um, and and it, it, you know they begin to look sillier and sillier the further back in American history you go because they're often more religious, but um, they, they – we have always thought that we were in an apocalypse.
0: Of course, with the Cold War, it was. We were in a very high-risk situation. <laughs> yeah, was...
1: I think nuclear war was really <laughs> – uh, and I love this this sort of like, um, oh, thank God we fixed that.
0: Then, yeah.
1: oh, well, no, no, the nukes are still here. We oh, yeah. Sort of forgot about it for a while.
0: And the people making our Ukraine policy have forgotten about it, it seems. But that's another <laughs> yeah. totally another topic.
1: <laughs> well, actually, I mean, so I'm a bit more rosy on nukes than I think a lot of people are. Um, the, the rosy perspective I have on nukes is I actually suspect that most of the nukes in the world that aren't in the U.S. and a few other developed countries are no longer operational. That's what um,
0: Greg Cochrane, who I usually do podcasts with, things, He thinks there's a decent chance that they've worn down and aren't working.
1: Yeah, which is great. I mean, if that's true, then we live in this amazing world where people aren't creating large scale conflict against each other because they think they have these super deadly weapons, yeah. but nobody actually has these weapons anymore.
0: Although we could be living in a world where the only new working weapons are North Korean because they regularly test and the North Korean leadership figures this one out.
1: <laughs> that would be scary. Um, uh, well, not really, because North Korea really can't proliferate that much. And, and their own, they're having fertility issues as well in North Korea, so they're, they're collapsing as a population as well. Um, and I, I find what's really kind of heartening about a world where populations are collapsing all over the place – and uh, I mean, it, it to me shows how dumb the Ukraine war is right now, it, it, dumb for both sides, because they are they both have terribly low fertility rates, Ukraine and, and Russia, um, and they're killing their entire breeding generation, basically. Um, and so their fertility rates are going to crash even further, and they're fighting over like land and defensive positions in a world yeah. where birth rates are what matter. And and where this really, because, you know, I've worked a lot in... Korea and China and Japan is, you know, these three countries forever have been like trying to like conquer the other ones and replace their culture. And uh, now we're entering a world where all of their populations are collapsing simultaneously. Like Korea's population is going to be at like 5% of what it is now in like a hundred years. They're going to need people on their land. And, and finally, the Japanese could just take it over or the Chinese could just take it over if their populations weren't also collapsing. And so we live in this world where Uh, All of these groups who used to fight each other could now beat each other just through love. And the reason I say through love and not through sex is sex alone can't solve the fertility issue. If you just have a lot of kids but you don't give those kids a good life or a reason to carry on the culture that you built for them and have kids of their own, then you haven't built a durable culture. You know, you have to both have a lot of kids and impart your culture to those kids and love them enough to want to carry on your culture – um and and that's really cool that that groups today could conquer the world through love however they could also conquer the world through economically destroying any ecosystem they go into and preventing women from becoming educated so there's sort of two directions now,
0: i mean use. i know the, co- the the correlation was as women became educated they had fewer kids do we know that's a causal thing and I'm sure the women in any given time in the 1960s in the U.S. had fewer kids, but there's also a lot of other things going on, right? The oh, yeah, women yeah, it was who a direct got educated.
1: thing. Um, was, so actually, when we were really freaked out about population rising too quickly, um, and, and I will tell your listeners, while half of the world's population lives in a country below fertility rate, the world population is still rising. And the reason for that is, is you can only be 2.1 fertility rate below replacement rate but you can be a hundred above it you know there's a lot of countries where people are like 10 above it or whatever um and so in these places where uh you know we are still dealing with uh, constantly rising populations. People like Bill Gates have been trying to get population down, and like they've obviously studied this a lot. And so mm-hmm. you can sort of A-B test different things. And we know a lot of things lower fertility rates. Like if you increase the health of a population, fertility rate goes down. If you increase the wealth of a population, fertility rate goes down. But the biggest is female education. Um, and uh, it's – I mean – it, it's It's unfortunately you know kind of a sad state and that I think it shows to some extent that um, one of the reasons why women were having kids in the past was was that they were so disempowered you know when they were. And our biology really hasn't caught up with us. I bet fertility rate in the developed world would be fine if we moved women's fertility window from like 20 to 30 to 40 to 50.
0: Yeah. And, and technology can do
1: that. I mean, Yeah. Yeah. We're getting close to that. So that'll be really cool. And I should be clear, like a lot of people know we run like pronatalist.org and they're like, oh, you want fertility to go up forever. And it's like, no, we definitely don't. Like fertility does need to come down. Like world population does need to come down. But like we need a soft landing, not a hard landing. We need it to decrease like 20, 30 percent per generation, not like 90 percent and not so lumpy that like a ton of ethnicities go extinct. And, and what's really interesting is when I talk about this, people think like white nationalism. It's like actually white evangelical Christians are one of the most resistant populations in the world to post uh, prosperity fertility collapse. Um, the groups that are really at risk are often like in the U.S. it's Native American populations. Uh, their fertility rate is only 1.2 right now. Um, and, and uh, you know, that is that is really worrying to me. Um but then if you look worldwide, I mean, we're looking at some of the oldest cultures to exist uh, are likely not going to be like, they're not going to have populations that are large and functional enough to really be thriving cultures by the time of my great grandkids. So here I'm thinking like the Parsi um, or, or the the Jains in India, right? Um, so I think too often we think about this in terms of like, modern u.s politics and even like what the night white nationalists want is largely stupid even from their own goals so uh they like want to create like an ethno state and prevent immigration yet like we know around the world what happens when you do that like korea is basically an ethno state and they have one of the lowest fertility rates in fact if you look at the countries that are prosperous and that have high fertility rates the most resistant to fertility collapse are the most you're looking largely at the u.s France, and Israel, three of the most diverse countries in the developed world. And if you take someone from a less diverse country to a more diverse country, like a Korean, they have a 0.8 fertility rate in Korea and a 1.4, 50% higher when they immigrate to the U.S. Um, So just broadly, diversity seems to be good for fertility rates.
0: Well, that's interesting. I never heard that before.
1: Well, it doesn't align with anyone's narratives. What's so cool about fertility rates is, um, you know, when you first talk about it, everybody wants to use it to like support whatever their pet causes, you know, <laughs> of course. The, the racists are like, oh, they're trying to replace us. And it's like, well, actually, you're probably better with more immigrants, even if you only care about your own ethnicity. And then, you know, you talk to far progressives and they're like, well, people are too poor. And it's like, well, actually, the poorer you are, the more kids you have. So um, now this this is a U-curve. It does go back up again when you get to a certain level of wealth but you don't get above replacement rate again in the US until a family is earning half a million to a million dollars a year. So it's like totally unrealistic to solve it at the the wealth end of the spectrum.
0: So that's why college professors have so few kids. The women are extremely (coughs) well-educated and we are nowhere near the half a million dollar a year. So (laughs) we have enough money where we're probably at like the point where you, you minimize the number of kids you have given everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so when we talk about how this can be fixed, And it's so interesting because it's all so different from the narratives people have, like the actual data is. So I mentioned uh, white evangelicals are one of the most resistant populations to fertility collapse. Uh, The most resistant population in the world is Jews, um, which is really fascinating and I think tells us a lot. So if you look at a world map of like what countries will be above replacement rate by the turn of the next century, you have like two countries like like it's like two countries in africa then like ubekistan and all of these countries are desperately poor and then you have israel which is just like mm-hmm. this weird outlier um and my theory as to why this is is because they if you view the first 18 years of a person's life is sort of like a sales pitch for your culture like this is the way we used to think of life, like or, or okay so historically what we did is we would raise kids and we basically say either continue the culture I'm raising you in or you're going to be punished for all eternity and um <laughs> largely that or and you're, or you'll be rejected from society and no one will ever care about you um and now we're entering a world where like you get a bake a pitch to someone but you have to be like stay in this cultural group because like this cultural group is a fun group to be a member of and it's good and it will help you in a myriad of ways in in your life and how you structure things and i think that um jewish culture has made the pitch that way for a long time um now and and that's why it's so good at like logically convincing kids that like no you're doing a good thing by having more jews in the world where i think many cultures just don't think of it that way yeah
0: is it all Jew? I mean, my, my impression is secular Jews in the United States have a very low fertility rate.
1: Secular Jews in the U.S. do have a low fertility rate, but secular Jews in Israel are the only place in the world where a secular population has an above repopulation fertility rate. I mean, obviously, the Haredi are really helping their numbers, right? Like, they're sort of cheesing it there. But in terms of secular Jews, it is remarkable to me that secular Jews in Israel have an above repopulation fertility rate. I didn't realize that. Um, but not in the U.S., and and uh, why is that the case? I don't know. I've I've heard that there's like a lot of like social pressure to have kids in Israel. So I mean, obviously, like society plays a big role here. Um, and uh, it's it's just a fascinating thing to think about because it has such monumentous implications for the future of 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 humanity. The groups that make it through this window, um, and yet we don't talk about it because it doesn't serve anyone's political interests.
0: Yeah. And like on the left, you have to pretend we're all exactly equal in every dimension, pretty much other than environment. So you talking about it would violate your assumption. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Well, and I often say on the left, like, I think this is going to change pretty dramatically in the near future. And so, you know, I think once we, because, you know, this is what the science says to a large extent, some people are born with certain advantages. You know, these advantages can be sociological profiles or IQ, because that does have a heritable component. And I really don't think pretending that you don't, you can't see the advantages you have is like an ethical position. I think in the future, uh, we're going to look at people who pretend that they haven't achieved their success partially due to genetic advantages they had. The same way we now look at people in the 90s who were like, I don't see race. It's like, no, pretending you don't see that you have an advantage is not a moral position. It's That's like a clearly unethical thing. Um, and I, I think the left is gonna soon realize that, well, if you pretend that like a person's cultural background has no impact on their success in life, then it becomes really hard to explain things like outside Jewish success. And like, this is a real problem when you look at the rise of antisemitism in our country. Um, and, and, and in part, this antisemitism is coming from the far left. Like, um you know, there was that separatist communist group that was burning copies of, uh, 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 what was it, Anne Rice's diary. You know, that, like that's how anti-Semitic some of these groups are getting now. And I think that like as a society, I'm really getting worried about it.
0: Yeah, and I, I do wonder if the left's going to look at like who – you said the evangelicals are having a lot more children. and they're, If they take a long enough view, they're like, wait, our kind isn't reproducing and their kind kind of is. So what's the future going to be like for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I'm I'm not on the left of myself, but I hope they do because the way it's not like as I said, it's not like the normal people on the right who are reproducing at these really high rates. It's I think what we would call Nazis, people who like dehumanize everyone who's not in their in group, um, which is is worrying to me because that's not the form of conservative I am, um, and I, I I I do think that we do see that group rising more and more within politics today, um, and. Uh, I don't know how we sort of wake up the world to like this is going to be an issue. And and as I often say, like, n- largely this is all unfixable. Like, um, there's things you could do, like your university thing you were talking about, but more broadly, like, we are here on a ship and I am saying the Titanic's gonna hit an iceberg, and people are like, oh, so let's steer it away. No, we're of the position, like, you cannot miss the iceberg now. Let's just get the lifeboats ready. Let's What is if-
0: yeah. What if we get better at gene editing and we could tell prospective parents, look, you, we can pretty much guarantee your your kid isn't going to get cancer until she's at least 60. Your kid will be as bright, you know, will be at least as bright as you, will be attractive and will even make the kid fun. You know, we, I'm sure there are genes that affect happiness. So we could say your parents, look, your kid's probably going to, if you want a bubbly, happy kid, you're probably going to get one. We can guarantee that. Well, that, you think that could cause a lot more parents to have children? I level think it's
1: and I think that the level, like, people don't realize how close we are to this. So, um, you know, in the near future, there's going to be this technology coming out. We're working with scientists on this right now, like our organization, to make, because we had one of the first, like, public Gattaga babies. So, like, we're very into this technology. And, like, the level of clarity we can get with a lot of this stuff can combine with AI in really interesting ways. So we'd be able to do something like... Through IVG, uh, do really good like selection on a lot of things, and then tell you when looking at the DNA of an embryo and the predictors that are associated with it, like create AI models using those predictors, so you could have little deep fakes of what your future kid would look like, <laughs> the things they might say, and you'd be able to interact with that, potentially, oh. uh, you know, try it out for a few weeks before you decide to implant oh. this egg.
0: Oh, Let that's amazing. It. So, you a couple could create like 12 embryos and then have a deep fake of each at different ages and then select. And then, yes. of course, once the kid is born, they could say, Hey, this is what we thought we were getting. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Good.
1: And this is when I talk about this technology, this is technology like with some stuff, it's like, Oh, there's major hurdles we can foresee, stuff like that. Like when you're talking about AI. This is technology that I can pretty much guarantee will be there within our lifetimes unless it's legislated against. We have made it past all the technological barriers necessary to to make this live. It's just the companies are, are you know, rolling out right now.
0: And then I guess the next level would be you don't go to embryo. You go to the step before with sperm and egg and you have millions of permutations. And you know, yes. you parents could just do this well, massive search. or Well,
1: maybe. this is what – I mean CRISPR comes in here, which could cause problems in yeah. humans. We don't know. Um, but in our book, we argue that if you do CRISPR in humans, animal models make it look like we could get IQ in humans up eight standard deviations within just two generations. Um, and if that's true, if humans really could be eight standard deviations, higher IQ, I think a lot of the fears we have around AI to some extent um, are are lessened. Um, that's
0: that's very true given the right time scale. It doesn't yeah. work if Doom will be determined in the next 20 years. It does in the next 50.
1: Well, it it may even if Doom is determined in the next 20 years because I think a core reason why AI may aggressively delete us is it just doesn't see our utility. But if we present an orthogonal uh, processing capacity that is to some extent you know, useful to the AI, then it may have a reason to keep us in live. Even if that processing capacity, not all of us, of course, I mean, it would still be a catastrophic um, event, but uh, we, it, it, it may be like, okay, humanity, you know, for a long time, you've used technology to not have to evolve anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, now the technology has turned around and put a gun to your head and it's like, catch up. I, mm-hmm. I either, either become useful to me or I'm getting rid of you.
0: Yeah. So the, I say, okay, you guys are useless now to me, but you might not be in a hundred years. So I'll keep you around just in case. Although a counterargument to that is probably a biological – if we AI goes very well, biological life probably isn't ever going to come close. I mean just – you need the brain the size of a house, say, and that's just not going to work well, to compete with an AI that has a data center that
1: is I know, mean, the size of a skyscraper. I, I, you're assuming it's not going to work because it wouldn't look human, but who knows where our species goes in 150 Yeah. Months. I mean, now that we can gene edit, now that we can do this stuff, now that we can hook into virtual environment spaces, who's to say we don't start having brains the size of houses? Or, or humanity takes the stars, not as ships as we think them, but as ships with like giant multi-ton brains at the core of them.
0: Yeah, but then we are – then we have gone extinct. It's a question of we, we've replaced ourselves. That's what some people argue, that, yeah, we're going to go extinct. I'm Some people are okay with that because I think there are better things out there than us.
1: <laughs> I mean humanity today is, is – is, I don't want to say barely. So in our book, we argue that, like, we – when we think about, like, what makes humanity special today, we often are like, well, we have things like Qualia and, and sentience. Um, and for listeners who are familiar, qualia is like the things we feel, right? Like these, like unex, like these hard to describe emotional states that we think of as like feelings of the world. Yet in our book, *The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion*, we argue that if you look at the data today, it seems to argue that most of this stuff that we think is super special about being human is mostly an illusion. And when I say an illusion, I don't mean that it doesn't exist or that we aren't experiencing it. It's just our sentience isn't the thing in the driver's seat of us. It's probably closer to the way we think of as a compression algorithm. Um, so to give an example of what I mean by this, if you're doing um, surgery on somebody, like brain surgery, you you need to keep them awake to make sure you don't like cut the wrong thing or something. And so you could do things like sort of provide an electrical stimulus to a part of their brain and get them to move their hand. And if you do this and you ask them, why did you move your hand? The person will say, well, I just felt like it. Have you give a person a, a with split brain syndrome a Rubik's cube and you cover one eye so you're only communicating with the part of their brain that doesn't control their speech centers and you say uh, – you show a card that says pick up that Rubik's cube. So they'll pick up the Rubik's cube. Then you you cover the other eye so you're asking the other part of the brain and you say, why did you pick up this Rubik's cube? And they'll say, um, I've always wanted to solve one of these things. If you um, are doing an experiment where you asking someone like uh, who they find most attractive among a number of people um, – you can uh, do a little trick where you switch out the picture that they chose. And then later you're like, why did you choose this person? And they'll give like a detailed explanation of why they chose the person they didn't choose. Um, And you could actually even do this with a person's political beliefs. Um, So it's it's not like big political things, but on like, you know, nuanced takes. So what we are sort of seeing here is that even if a part of your brain, and and we can see the part of our brain that makes decisions in fMRI machines makes the decision before the sentient part of our brain recognizes it, it's sort of like we have this unconscious part of our brain that is actually in the driver's seat of our humanity. And then our sentience is sort of like this sense-making mechanism that tries to narratively string together the things that we are doing, but doesn't actually have access to the parts of our brains that are making all the decisions for us. Um, almost like a historian trying to determine the actions of somebody who lived, you know, a thousand years ago and it makes mistakes all the time, but it always and systemically will lie to you. It will always claim. The one thing we know about the sentience part of our brain is it always claims that it is the one in charge as it was. It's like this historian that is always claiming it's the one in charge. Um, and I think to some extent, you know, people are like, well, this can influence your actions. So therefore it does matter. That's like claiming that, you know, because Russia invaded Ukraine on this false narrative that the Ukrainians were all Nazis, that that false history now is true because it influenced actions. But where this is interesting is that once you begin to really recognize how much of our sentience is just like this surface level, not really substantive thing, you begin to realize how much more meaningfully human humans could be if we just started tweaking a few things.
0: Yeah, I mean you're saying we're basically we don't have as much nearly as much agency as we think we do. Yeah. And that we're our sentience is more observation and experiencing pain and pleasure, but parts of our brain we don't whatever we is, we don't really have access to is doing I've actually noticed this about myself with my sense of fear, that I, I I have two cats and they'll like walking on the piano. So I'll be sleeping and I hear the piano playing. And part of my, my sense of fear would be like, oh, no, someone's broken into my house, they're playing my piano, and they're going to kill me. Now, of course, I know that's absurd, and what's happened like five or six times, I really know it's absurd, but I don't – my sense of fear is still doing that to me every time. And I like wonder how much of other things I, – I, I know I don't control my sense of fear because it's doing really absurd things, and I... it's doing them repeatedly. But what else is there that I, I don't realize that this isn't me doing this?
1: I love this This take. Yeah, well, and it's a question of, like, could you be – better? like, could our emotional states be better? Because the emotional states we have are largely the collection of the emotional states that helped our distant ancestors have more surviving offspring, right? Yeah, In a completely yeah. different environmental and social context. Like, could you create – Humans that maybe don't suffer when they don't need to, and this is really interesting. If you go to eugenics.org, like I don't know if this is a real organization or something, but their core eugenics mission, and I do not support eugenics. I just want to say, like broadly, I don't like this this term. I don't like that they use it. But what eugenics.org is trying to do is to genetically engineer humans to not experience pain when they don't have to, and to experience more happiness in general. Like that's their goal. Um mm-hmm. and to me, that's really interesting because I think that's like a broad thing that most people would agree is probably good, like a lot of suffering in the world we probably don't need as humans. Um, but then are we less human if we get rid of those things? Um, and I think that historically a lot of these things like the brain in a vat has been a genetic – I mean a a, um, a hypothetical experiment for philosophers, and yet our grandkids may have to decide, hey, you can be a brain in a vat and be happy all the time. Don't you know that's like a 30-buck procedure? Um, or, or questions of, well, you can make sure your kids never have to experience pain. Is that an ethical thing? Um, and all of these, the things that were just like philosophical thought experiments in the past are like real questions we may have to answer and things that may lead to some forms of speciation, which is also going to be really interesting because, you know, the Amish have been largely resistant to this fertility collapse. And if you look at most of the cultures, people are like, well, what happens when all humans are editing their genes and stuff like that? And it's like, well... All humans probably won't. Most human – most of the cultures that seem resistant to this collapse are very technophobic. Um, So no matter what, we're still looking at a small portion of humanity that would be doing this, and then what becomes of them? I I don't know. I find it interesting.
0: But the Amish – if there's a subset of Amish that edit their genes to cause their kids to want to have even more kids. They're like, oh, this is the part of us that we're different, that want to have more kids. Let's maximize that. That are the Amish that will dominate.
1: Well, that's us. I mean, so my family is very, like, we built a lot of religious like structures into our family, and as soon as that technology exists, we are going to do that.
0: You're, you're going to pick the genes for your kids so your kids want to have as many kids as they can reasonably support.
1: Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so that group is not a hypothetical group, <laughs> and now the world has to say, oh, no, this group exists. What do we do about them? Um yeah, I mean I want my kids when we uh, – because I would be that as lowering the burden of the life that we are trying to give them, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that's one thing we added around, and it's very interesting. So like we do selection for our kids, um, and people are, I think are often surprised by like morally how we handle this. So we select against things like cancer, like the obvious stuff. But when mm-hmm. it comes to mental stuff, we select against things like major depressive episodes um anxiety migraines but we actually have actively chosen not to select against things like autism add stuff like that which are more like personality aspects that our society has defined as negative and not things that, that necessarily cause suffering in the people who experience them.
0: how much benefit right now can you get by using this technology for selecting against depression So, i mean
1: um Well, so it depends on if you're going all in on one issue. You know, it's a bit like choosing a politician. Only so many politicians Mm -hmm. exist. Only so many embryo candidates exist. And if you're a one-issue voter, well, you could pick the politician that's, like, crazy Mm -hmm. about that one issue, but then that doesn't mean, you know, you're getting the good things with everything else you want. So you're really choosing a weighted average, and, you know, when you're using a few embryos, you're probably looking at, like, a 5% difference. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a marginal difference If, if you are not creating super babies yet. Now, where you get to super babies is as soon as you get IVG. IVG is the technology that allows you to create um, egg cells and sperm cells from uh, uh, like skin cells on a person, right? And we're very close. Mm-hmm. We'll have this technology within 10 years or so. Um, and uh, that is when you can, can create like large numbers because the big problem right now is you're limited by the number of eggs you can extract that, that end up becoming fertilized and becoming embryos. It's
0: interesting. The gay rights movement is probably going to guarantee that politically that technology will be allowed.
1: It's funny. They are kind of fighting against it. So I really love – Really? It. I am a huge supporter of IVG. I think it mm-hmm. is the greatest thing ever, um, and it will allow gay people to have kids that are biologically – it will allow a poly couple to have kids that are like one-fist this person, one-fist this <laughs> person, one-fist this person. But um, when – it's not gays specifically, but progressives – See, All sort of like repo tech is too close to the eugenics movement. So they often are pretty like resistant to it, Um, which is really sad because I mean, I think that um, there's a great study that's shown like how anti LGBT the population is getting due to differential birth rates. And I think that um, for me, it's really important to build both the technology that is necessary for gay people to have kids, but I think also the social infrastructure. When I talk to like my gay or trans friends or whatever, they're like, "Yeah, like pretty much all of us want to have kids, but like we'd prefer to be like one fourth of a parental unit, you know what I mean? Like do this <laughs> yeah. with a polycule." And it's like this is something we could do if our society had better social institutions for enabling matchmaking around that because like our current matchmaking is just garbage right now. Like even at what the people who most embrace it want it for, which is often, you know, carefree sex, it's bad at delivering that. If you look at uh, since Tinder was uh, introduced, the rates of sexlessness, especially in men have gone up like 20%, but they've also yeah. gone up in women. It's not like women are benefiting from this.
0: Look, I think very good looking guys though, probably are benefiting from Tinder. yes
1: very good looking guys are the only group that is um most women suffer because you know they're um largely sorting for the the most successful guys and because these most successful guys sort of get their pick of the litter they well they kind of are benefiting what happens to the very good looking guys and the very successful guys because i know a lot of guys in this category is because the switching costs are so low for them because there's so many women sort of lined up for them um they have created unrealistic expectations around settling down. Like it's always like what's going to be next. And they would be much happier if they just settled down with someone they really cared for instead of were like randomly having sex with people. Um, and so for even them, I mean, I think they're at this lower optimum. And what I mean here, and this is something that I often talk about, is humans know that they're like going to psychologically change pretty dramatically when they go through puberty. Um, and we, we prepare for this and we prepare kids for this. We're like, oh yeah, you're going to totally like change the things that make you happy, the things you want in life. Um, and, and we're like, and the reason this happens to you is because your ancestors who didn't go through this or your potential ancestors didn't end up having sex. They didn't end up having kids. And yet we also know that every one of us, almost, almost all of the people we are descended from are people who raise kids and humans, even at like the hormonal level, go through a very dramatic shift when they're in a long-term relationship. And then again, when they have kids. Um, and I would argue that that a dad is about as different a thing from a teenage boy as they are from a mom or a, a young woman. And a, a mom is about as like sociologically a different thing from a teenage girl as that teenage girl is from a teenage boy. Like the, the changes you go through and the things that make you happy and that you care about happen really dramatically after you have kids. And yet these guys who just have this endless line of girls waiting on them – um, they never get to experience that. And I think as a dad, you'd probably agree. This is where a lot of like your happiest moments yeah. come from. Yeah. Um. It, yeah. If, if you look at like the top male influencer right now, I think it was last year for for young teens, it was Andrew Tate, right? And as a dad, <laughs> like I look at Andrew Tate and I'm like, there is nothing about his lifestyle that I want. I, oh,
0: when my son was mad at me once. He jokingly said, well, I'm going to start following Andrew Tate now. <laughs> it was a way of i don't think he was serious but that was his threat to be
1: for something that's a that's a good threat um uh you know i'll see him as my father figure now <laughs> yes andrew tate from here on out um no but it's interesting because i think the, the looking at andrew tate i forgot how different i was as a young man but as a young man i mean i might have seen something about his lifestyle as alluring but as a dad it just seems so desperately unhappy <laughs> Um, which I think you see in his desperate search for meaning, you know, recently converting to Islam and stuff like that. Um, and I think that you, you do, um, you know, see this in our society is that a lot of people in a lot of cultures are beginning to go back to older religious traditions. And it'd be cool if we could do that without all of the, you know, um, bigotry that often comes with it. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that the rationalist movement, like, centered around Less Wrong. They're trying to yep. say to learn from like Mormons and like what are the traditions, what are ways we could trust each other, and I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm well, not I mean, clear that's if that's really, ever going to succeed. Mean, but <laughs>
1: I'm j- often called we're, 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 the 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 sort of le- well, I'm I'm probably one of the leaders or the leader of the right wing faction of the EA movement right now, um, which is a very small faction, but <laughs> um, that that's what they are interested in. Like, they're very much they're right wing in that they are traditionalists. Like they're like, okay, well, we've got to go back to older things, you know, we, and their goals are different. I mean, I would say that the generic EA and less wrong movement are sort of like util, utility, accountants trying to like maximize yeah. happiness units in the world. Whereas we are much more focused on like trying to ensure that humanity becomes a, a prosperous and diverse interstellar empire one day um, mm-hmm. where, you know, people don't feel pain anymore and everyone lives these these miraculous future lives. Uh, but it's much more about, like, culture crafting and, and and putting our civilization on the right path. So we often focus more on things like interstellar travel, education, pronatalism, stuff like that.
0: It's, I, I wonder if it's a personality type, the sort of person into less wrong. Most of them, it's probably hard for them to focus on, like, having lots of children.
1: We actually do argue it's a personality type. So I, in the book, we argue very specifically that um, society typically works best when you have multiple cultural groups working together um and that we argue that the other the left-wing version or we call it left wing it's not really left wing it's more cosmopolitan so they're often from cosmopolitan specialist cultures um and and because of that they have a lot more trust in institutions like even the way they give to charity is very different from our group so because they have trust in institutions they give their money to experts to like distribute whereas our faction often does more of just starting our own thing so like if i want to start if i want to fix education i start my own school system Right, Um, and I think Elon's a pretty good avatar of this mindset towards charity, where like he wants to lower carbon emissions, he starts a car company that does you know electric cars, he or not starts buys and grows. He wants to do space travel, he starts a space travel company. He wants to do education, he starts a new education company. You know, um, it's, it's just sort of a different mindset towards how you improve things. And I think that our society is better when you have these groups working together. And this is something you can actually see from the data. So, uh, you know, uh, we talked about like different evolved, like cultural groups. Um, and when I say evolved, I don't mean at the genetic level, I mean at the mimetic level. Um, and, uh, you know, historically, you will sometimes get speciation between these groups. Like uh, the the Reformation was largely a fight where you had one group that said, uh, it was a fight over how you should determine what's true, like what standard of evidence people should rely on. And one group said, we should have experts who spend their whole lives studying something and that are then certified by a central bureaucracy. And that's how we should determine what is true. And then the other group said, no, because that central bureaucracy is open to corruption Therefore, you should always determine what's true based on the individual doing research themselves. And uh, that was the Catholics versus the Protestants. And yet, this same thing we saw was the COVID debates. And very interesting, the Catholics predominantly settled in cities and the Protestants predominantly settled in rural areas. And that was the same side of this exact same debate happening in our society again And what we argue in the book is that if you look at cultures that become monocultural, neither of these ways of seeing the world is optimal by themselves. So the expert consensus model, China shows how that gets a runaway. You know, you end up with zero COVID because they make a mistake, and then they can't admit that they made a mistake because you have this hierarchy, and um, they just end up spiraling out of control and, like, welding people into their apartments and stuff like that, and people end up starving to death. But then, you know, the Protestant model – um, you end up with like QAnon, right? Um, where and flat Earthers, we're like everything must be determined at the individual level, and don't trust anything. And so, um, you know, I, I think that you you really benefit from what we have here in America now, which is this multicultural ecosystem. And and one of my biggest fears about collapsing birth rates is that we're going to lose that, and that the various cultural groups will no longer be able to work together anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's and certainly having people experiment and learning who's doing better and who's doing worse. Is, there's huge value to that. Yes,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, and, and this is something we can look at. Um, so we can look at, well, what happened in countries that were predominantly had this uh, expert consensus mindset, because, you know, we have data on that. So um, you're looking predominantly at Orthodox and Catholic countries. Most of them had that. And in countries that are predominantly they've taken um, uh, uh, that mindset you have much higher rates of corruption you, they were much more less likely much more likely to be dictatorships much less likely to be democracies um, and uh, but you get a lot of benefits from that mindset so if you look at our own Supreme Court um, you know uh, seven of the nine people in the last iteration of it I haven't looked at the recent one were raised Catholic uh, and Neil Gorsuch was raised half Catholic but I mean, still, that's a huge outsized uh, proportion. And the, the other two were raised Jewish. Um, so you didn't have a single Protestant in a country that is predominantly Protestant on our Supreme Court. I mean, no one's complaining about this, um, which is, to me, I think, uh, a really healthy sign for our culture, because at long tails, when you get cultural specialization, you're going to see real outside performance. And this trust in institution makes them much better at sort of running these large institutions. Mm-hmm.
0: It could also be you no know, one's complaining because there's other things that are we complain about and that's <laughs> that dominates with the Supreme Court. But
1: Yeah. Well, I mean I, I think that the group that probably would complain is happy with the situation. I mean I think if, if the the Catholics weren't on the conservative side, the conservatives would likely be complaining about it. Um but uh I yeah, I mean it's interesting that we get complaints about like outsized areas of like Jewish overrepresentation, but not areas of like outsized over Catholic representation. Um, and I think that like the problem, again, it's a cultural narrative of just like the culture you grow up in doesn't change your outcomes. And if you believe that, then you can't explain these, these differences, um, which is leads to, I I think, actual discrimination and and fears of like people cheating the system. Yeah. Um, but lots of fun things to think about for the future of our species here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this is, I think. Very, very important, especially again, if A if we have an AI winter, then this is going to be the, the major deciding issue for what happens to our species is what happens to the evolution of humans in the next 50, 100 years.
1: Yeah. Well, and how does AI co-evolve with us? And I think that this yeah. is you know, we talk a lot about uh AI alignment with humans, but we may need to start thinking about culturally aligning some human populations with AI. Um yeah. one of the 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 sort of jokes we say that we do within our family is um you know, uh, in Islam, uh, when you hear Allah's name, you're supposed to say "Peace be upon him." Was in some versions of it. Um, and so, like, when we talk about uh, uh, general intelligence AI one day taking over the world, we're like, uh, you know, and then we're around like an Alexa or an Okay Google, you know, we're yeah. like, uh, and of course, our family will be their 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 peaceful and devoted servants. Um, <laughs> just just so that it has that on record when it's trying to well, plan not to
0: kill. <laughs> How many kids do you have, by the way?
1: Um, we're at three right now. We're going to keep going because every one of them has to be a C-section due to complications my wife had in her first pregnancy. Um, and second pre- every pregnancy has been incredibly complicated. But uh, so eventually oh. they're going to take out her, her um, God, womb, I guess. Um, but until then, we're just going to have as many kids as we can. I mean, we'd like to go up to like 13 if we can.
0: Oh, my gosh. that's well,
1: But fair. population issues are really cool because they're super tractable. And by that, what I mean is – when you look at, um, things like, uh, global warming, right? Like you sort of have to get, it's a tragedy of the commons issue, right? Like it's a problem because to fix it, you have to get everyone on board, um, with population. I mean, if just my family has eight kids and we do that for just 11 generations, that's more descendants than live on earth today. Um, but that's a failure scenario because you know, like our core thing is multiculturalism. Like we want a multicultural, a multi-ethnic ecosystem. So if it's just like our kids, like we have failed, but what it means is that to fix this, we don't need to convince everyone that we're right. We just need to convince some people from a diverse array of cultural and ethnic backgrounds.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Exponentials are very weird. They're very counterintuitive. And if you think through them, you can come to reasonable conclusions. Other people don't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um and And I what I, one of the things I find really fun about all of this is it sort of shows that the world we're actually living in is so different from the framework that either the progressive or conservative side of the political spectrum has for the way the world is operating.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, they're just I mean they're they're fighting these little in the moment battles that you know, we are at a period right now where like our the future of our species is decided this generation. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, um, it'll be decided that- probably by our kids. So uh, the way that we've done in raising them, it determines if our species goes extinct. If we enter a state where we like basically live in a heaven, <laughs> our entire yeah. species. If we become a multiplanetary empire, if we stay on this planet, it all gets determined in this next generation, and that is so cool.
0: I, no, I have agreed with that, but I also th- – I think, though, that that's a, a evidence we in a computer simulation. That it's like, wait, I seem <laughs> to be too important.
1: Go over this theory for your listeners. I really like it.
0: Oh, sure. I, I mean, let's imagine that you knew the future you would be convinced they were the president of the United States. You would have to conclude now that, okay, my future me is insane because I'm really unlikely to be the president. Well, what if you conclude, look, looking at everything around me, I'm living in the most important time, that – You know, if you think of how long humans have been around for a very long time, and then the future history of the universe, we survive, we've got trillions of years in front of us. But you think, no, now I live in the time where everything will be decided. You probably don't. And this is probably, you know, we're in some advanced civilization around a black hole, and we're running computer simulations, or you're playing a computer game of what it was like to live in the important time. So if you're you're too unusual, you think, ah, I'm probably mistaken about being this unusual because most by definition, most people, most things aren't really unusual. Most things aren't really
1: special. Yeah, well, that would definitely explain the Fermi paradox. I really liked your read of this, which is not just that, but that most people are not actually being fully simulated.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. If this is a computer simulation, we don't know that everyone has sentience. And it could be just you. It could be just the people you interact with. Maybe this is all based on one really important person. Maybe, you know, your niece is the, the key deciding person in history and whatever you're around her, you're sentient. Otherwise, you're not. You're just like a NPC in a video game.
1: I so. love this theory so much, which means, of course, we are recording this conversation for you, the listener, because you had to hear this to do whatever yes. it is you're going to do in life.
0: So this, yes, one of you is important, and that's why we exist right now.
1: We're, we're just an AI talking, but we're talking so that you can go out and make the change you, you need to make in the world. And likely, I mean, the reason why that they are simulating this important period in human history is because they're future police, and they need to they're, – they're running models to find out how to get it right. And they're going to somehow manipulate the time stream based on those models.
0: Yeah, time travel is possible. Then yes, this gets very, very weird. But, I mean, even weirder. And that's we're, we're optimizing for something. And... But
1: here's a different way you could think of it. So um, w- the way our sort of face looks at it is that so we know from uh, like the double slit experiment that probability waves of a photon can bounce off of each other. Yeah. Who's to say that, um, or, or sort of the way we think of it is, what if future events exist as sort of probability waves? And because it is possible within one of those futures for an infinitely powerful entity or almost infinitely powerful entity to come to exist, that that entity would have a motivation to attempt to manifest that future. And therefore, it would do things. I mean, we could be in the simulation. We could be in the real version. But I think largely whether you're in the simulation or in the real version, I think a lot of people think maybe life has less meaning if they're in a simulation. Yet I disagree um, if you've ever played, uh, uh, the game of life, I forget what, who, what's the name of the guy who made it. I want to say Laszlo's no John Conway, I think John Conway's game of life. Right. You know, so it shows how like complicated patterns can emerge out of like simplistic rules. Um, I suspect that that's sort of a very good analogy for how our physical universe works on sort of top of a mathematical lattice. So the, the thing that I always say is, Okay if we assume that all mathemat- that math exists outside of our reality, like 2 plus 2 equals 4 inside or outside of our reality, 2 things plus 2 things will always be 4 things, and we take that as a presumption, um, well, then we would assume that sort of like all potential mathematical equations exist outside of reality because you wouldn't have like 2 plus 2 equals 4, but not 2 plus 4 equals 6, right? Like, that's not... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, what if... If we have a, um, if our reality is coded by like a single unifying equation or a few equations that describe how things interact, what if the way we can think of reality is sort of like the graphical representation of that equation? By that, what I mean is if I have a math equation that describes like a graphical representation, I don't need to graph that representation for it to exist as an emergent property of that equation. What if we are the emergent property of an equation that can describe the way physics could exist? And the reason why I first made the point that these equations exist outside of reality is, okay, if the world is coded by a simple equation, and if all equations that can exist must exist sort of outside of our universe, then we would exist as a graphical representation of one of those equations, whether or not that equation was graphed. That being the case, it means that the real world, not the simulation world, is very much like a simulation in that it is a graphical representation of a simplistic equation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is all consistent with the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics of why math seems to work so well at modeling the universe, because.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it is is just, uh, uh, but it would also mean that we don't exist in the physical sense, I mean, in the same way that like if you're in a computer program um, Two people, like things interacting in the computer program, would think that the things they're touching are physical objects when they're really just emergent properties of the equations that code that program, um, and that that's also an illusion that's applied to us.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of layers out there. We don't know where we are, and oh yeah, how boring our universe is, or exciting, or no. Well,
1: uh, yeah, it's it's been great to chat with you. I this yeah, did, it's this very interesting